You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And it's welcome to another Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. Kevin unwell when this program was put together, but I'm hoping that he's fully recovered and will be back again next week. The elections are over in the US, but what will the future hold for the citizens of that nation and indeed the world? I'll be talking with Megan Cornish from the Freedom Socialist Party and Radical Women in Seattle. We'll hear more of Joan Coxidge's Hard Facts for Hard Times, which were put together during her years in State Parliament here in Victoria. Uncertain times in occupied Western Sahara, with Morocco provoking conflict on the southern border with Mauritania. I'll be talking with Kate Lewis from the Australia Western Sahara Association. The 50th country has ratified the treaty to ban nuclear weapons, and I'll be looking at that 75-year campaign to get to this stage with Associate Professor Tilman Ruff. That's the program until 6pm this evening. Around the world there are no shortages of opinions on the impact of the Trump regime over the past four years, whether he will leave, how and what a Biden presidency might mean. Today we hear the views and experiences of a grassroots radical activist from the Pacific Northwest of the United States whose fight for a different America spans decades I'm speaking with Megan Cornish, a member of Radical Women and the Freedom Socialist Party. Megan, we're going to talk about that recent past under Trump, the elections, the prospects for the future. But can we begin with a brief history of your dedicated activities, where that's taken you in your life? I became a political activist during the late 60s anti-war movement and rise of the feminist movement and supporting uh, the black movement. Then in the early 70s, I became a non-traditional tradeswoman, so I fought for affirmative action for women and people of color and entry into those jobs that were well-paid and almost all white men. (laughs) And I've became a socialist in the very early 70s and have been a socialist feminist activist for the duration. What does a socialist feminist mean for you? You know, if you fight for equal rights for women, that has to mean all women, which means you're fighting for racial equality as well as for equal rights for women. We believe in Radical Women and Freedom Socialist Party, both of which I'm member of, that socialist feminism means that the people at the bottom are the ones who are the most dynamic and, the, and provide the most leadership in all the movements. And, of course, we're seeing this today more than ever. How successful do you believe you've been over the years to achieve your aims? Well, of course, we believe in socialist revolution, and that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> but I think that the perspective for it is better today than I've seen in my lifetime, including the movement of the 60s, because, you know, there are just 
so many people who are mobilized to fight for the human rights and for climate survival. And more and more we see that the capitalist system is just, uh, it's in serious decline. And I think more and more people are seeing that if we don't go to a new game, there's no other answer than going to a new game. Can we focus on the year or so leading up, the election, up to the election early this month? What do you believe the presidency of Trump has meant for, well, perhaps we start with racism and his support for the alt-right and police violence. How do you believe he's impacted on those areas? Well, he's certainly had a, a horrible effect, not just in the U.S., but around the world, um, between his open racism, both uh, nationally and internationally, and his overt support to and, and endorsing of the far right. Uh, people pretty much agree that the far right has become mainstream Republican virtually you know, calling in federal troops against protesters, all these things, and his severely xenophobic policies have been extremely harmful to the and corrosive, you know, to society in general. No question, he was a bad deal. <laughs> How on earth this man could have got to the position he had? You know, one thing to, to realize is how undemocratic the system is in the United States. Americans go on and on about protecting our democracy and so on. Well, we don't have a democracy. Trump lost the popular vote last time in 2016. And because we don't have direct election of the president, he, he had the electoral college votes to be the president. I don't know if that answered your question entirely. Looking at Racial justice protests. There's been a lot in recent times in the northwest of the United States. Have you and your groups been involved in these protests? Oh, yes, very much so. Just like in every part of the country, the murder of George Floyd was so brutal and well documented that People just spontaneously went, okay, that's it. That's enough. I remember that's what I did when I heard about it. Okay, where's the demonstration? And people just headed into the streets. A lot of it has been grassroots. There are organizations that have formed up since then. But, you know, it was a just a massive rejection of what people know goes on in this country. And one of the things that was significant about it was not only so many people of color went out, but many, many white people went out and said, this matters as, as much to, to me for myself as for you. You know, it pointed out that a lot of Mer Americans of all stripes really hate this killing of black people and the injustices in the legal system, which they're based on. And then it was the reaction of the the state to the protesters where, I don't know whether it was Trump or not, ordering in troops and having their numbers taken off and uniforms taken off and people being dragged off the street into unmarked cars. That was uh, one of the things that 
Freedom Socialist Party did was organize a uh, caravan of people to go down to Portland and support the uh, labor contingent that was supporting the protesters. There were many, many people in Portland who came out in defense of the protesters after, you know, the, the feds came in. Moms for the protesters, you know, all kinds of different groups, but also labor. We organized people from the Puget Sound to go down to defend them as well. Are those protesters still in custody? Some people are, and there are new people being arrested in different places around the country. I encourage people to check out the Freedom Socialist newspaper, whose new edition is going to have a small article indicating some of the main places where they're going after protesters, but it's happening across the country, and there's going to have to be a lot of grassroots organizing in defense of people. Do you believe that it's it's Trump mainly that's given the police the right to do what they do, or do you believe that would have would have happened even without Trump? I think if Trump hadn't been there, the far right would have had to create him, and I think that him going out of office is not going to change the ball game as much as a lot of uh, liberals say. The right wing has been mightily strengthened, and, you know, the so-called liberal establishment, as in the mainstream of the Democratic Party, is completely not an answer to it. So what's going to be necessary is to build the left wing and the grassroots movement and the labor movement to uh, organize against them. That's, That's the only solution. People can't can't rely on, uh, you know, the cops and the state to do it. They they won't. And, of course, that right wing has always been there. You would say that they're more emboldened now. It has always been there, but it has, I think, grown vastly in the last few years. Uh, The whole of Trump's presidency, and also, I mean, it's, it's come out of, Things like the growth of right-wing media, uh, which has been funded by a portion of the uh, ruling elite in this country. The growth on the Internet of uh, really wild right-wing organizing. It's quite, quite extensive. The left-wing has to develop ourselves to fight back and to help working people organized to fight back. Moving on to the election and the results so far, which point to defeat for Trump, but there are a number of issues. One issue is that up to or increasingly of 70 million people voted for Trump. Does that worry you? Oh, yeah. It's very interesting. For one thing, the, the whole election was a referendum on Trump. Primarily, people did not vote for Biden so much as they voted against Trump. And then you have this huge vote that was, it wasn't 50-50, but it was pretty darn close, people voting for Trump. Yes, it's the growth of racism and, and outright racism has become okay again, 
but it goes beyond that, really beyond that. It, there are a lot of people who feel that they benefited economically under Trump. A lot of those gains were temporary, not intended to last past the election for the people on the bottom, small businesses and and working people. But some people did get uh, some advantages from him, and they voted that. And also, the it, it shows the weakness of the Democrats. The Democrats lost ground, even though they won the presidency. They probably will not gain the majority in the Senate, which won't be known until January, um, because of the two runoff elections for the Georgia Senate seats. Uh, they actually lost seats in the House, even though they maintained the majority. So, you know, they're very weak because they are doing what the ruling class wants and not what working people need. It's a real huge disconnect because the reason they won was because of massive grassroots organizing by progressives. And yet the person who's been elected does not stand for the things that those people want, by and large. There's also the phenomena of so many people voting this time. It's never been seen before. Well, what do you put that down to? I think it's, you know, passions are running very high on both sides. A lot of people turned out for Trump, unfortunately. Uh, more people turned out against Trump. There were some very interesting information that, that has come out on who, on, on the voting patterns of people of color. The election got the most, brought the most people out of any, uh, the highest percentage of people in 100 years. But the increase in the white vote was uh, under 3 million while the increase in the vote of people of color was 13.5 million. <laughs> and this is from 2016. So that's a commentary. Trump does have some people of color, but most of those people voted for Biden. What about people who identify as the left or the radical left? What do they do with their vote? They can only give it to Biden, well, but... He's not going to do much for them, is he? Right. You know, a huge proportion of the left uh, voted for him. Although I have to give credit to the Democratic Socialists, who are members of the Democratic Party, <laughs> refused to endorse Biden. Um, so I have to give him credit for that, but the individuals voted for him. And there was a huge press from the left that if you were a member of the Communist Party, you should vote for Biden. If you were DSA, you should vote for, for Biden. Uh, even a number of Trotskyist parties supported Biden because they said, oh, you know, anybody but Trump. Well, since I started voting in the 70s, that's been the argument. Anybody but the Republicans, any, you know, this is going to make a difference, and it hasn't made a difference. The Democrats have been, have been in political power about half the time uh, during my lifetime, and 
you know, during that time, we've got a huge increase in the prison industrial complex, huge repression against immigrants. The working class has not improved its wages since the 70s. The wealth of the of the ultra wealthy has exploded. It's just, and this has been under the Democrats as much as the Republicans. And then, of course, both sides are all about America, American imperialism and running the world. So at some point, and this was our argument in FSP, people have to recognize that the Democrats are not the answer. Go for actual independent politics. And we endorsed one of the other parties that had candidates, socialist action candidates, and uh, that's what we advocated. I'm sure that vote was minuscule. The U.S. system makes it almost impossible to get on the ballot if you're not a Democrat or Republican. But in the movement, we're not going to get change until working people take an independent political position. Nevertheless, what do you believe people expect from Biden now? Well, you know, that is very interesting because I think there's a major understanding that it was the grassroots organizing for the Democrats that brought them their victory. And yet, if you look at all the different organizations and cause groups and NGO-type groups from you know, the Sierra Club to the racial justice groups, they are all saying, we don't demobilize. We need to be out there in the streets fighting from the beginning. So I think, although they're not saying so outright, they know that Biden is not going to give them what they want and that the movements have to stay out in the streets. And if you look at his at, at his record, they're absolutely right to, to think that. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. I'm Jen Bartlett and I'm speaking with Megan Cornish, a member of Radical Women and Freedom Socialist Party in Seattle, USA. And he has a woman as vice president and much has been made of her ethnicity and breaking the glass ceiling. But to go back to what you were talking about before, law and so-called order, her role as prosecutor in California and as Attorney General in California, I don't believe many people know about that. I think that's true. And, you know, I, for women of color in particular, but for Americans in general, it's historic that we've got our first woman vice president and first woman of color. And she is black and East Asian. So, I mean, East Indian. You know, that is historic. But, yeah, if you look at her politics, they're pretty much right down the line with Biden. You know, she's a big supporter of Israel and and uh, against human rights for Palestinians. Her positions as attorney general and as prosecutor were very much along the lines of the the prison industry. I don't think she's going to make the difference that people hope. Climate change, that's one of the big issues, isn't it, that Trump played down? Well, he actually destroyed people's faith 
in government, I believe, to do something about climate change. I think you're right. And, of course, he did a huge amount of damage from basically uh, undoing the Endangered Species Act to uh, not only outright firing sci- uh, scientists in government and trying to keep the agencies that respond to climate change from doing so, he also did things like telling agencies they couldn't look at future chi- climate change problems. It was definitely a head-in-the-sand approach, but it's pretty clear since Biden, you know, was Obama's vice president that there is still not going to be real change on climate change. Sure, he will go back in the Paris Climate Agreement. That's fine, but even the countries that never left it have not done anything in particular because it was just the Paris Agreement was all promises. What we need is major action. Instead of that, Biden's talking about bipartisanship and compromise and all these things that, you know, the Democrats will, I mean, the Republicans will never be into taking action in that direction. Nevertheless, uh, major action's been taken at state level on climate change. Yes, and... Many, many people are activated around the climate and go out and fight on on the issues of trying to stop the pipelines and stop the fossil fuel projects. Um, And there's been some progress there. But, again, in the next issue of the Freedom Socialist, we're going to have an article on green capitalism versus eco-socialism. And if you look at the history of green capitalism so far, it's not moving the gas gauge. So we maintain that eco-socialism is the only practical solution for getting action on climate change. Can you explain how it would work? As scary as things are now, as as we get closer and closer to the uh, dropping off the cliff point, Things are scary out there, but there are things that could be done right away if there were governments that would put the policies into action. Expanding mass transit tremendously. In this country, bringing back the railroads because they're a lot uh, less intensive to run than, you know, trucks on the road and airplanes. So... Massive reforestation campaigns, actually funding green jobs, because it's one thing to say get rid of fossil fuels. It's another to create jobs for those people who would lose them. You know, you can't have the support of those people unless you take the the, the people first. You know, there are many challenges, but there are a lot of things that could be done right now, except the governments won't do it because... They're capitalist governments. It's not profitable. It needs a major education, doesn't it? Because people people aren't aware of what is possible because they're so indoctrinated with the system as it is. Right. There are even pundits now who are saying, oh, it's all over, we're done, give up. Well, yeah, I'm sure the, the fat cats who are getting rich off of killing the earth want want us to think that but no it's not over 
and people can make a difference, but uh, they have to have the freedom to do so. Well, the big challenge apart from climate change is the pandemic, which is raging in the US and many other countries. How is it impacting in your area and how are people coping with it or dealing with it? That is huge too. And, you know, that was like Biden's one thing he was running on that Trump had botched the pandemic. So we'll see what he does. But the main thing that I think people everywhere are suffering is from the economic collapse that has been caused by people not being able to go to work or whole industries get sick and their workers leave to go home and and recover. Unemployment is sky high. Our government has not done anything since the initial pittance that went out to help people in the first couple of months of the pandemic. I don't know how much is going to change about that because uh, you need acts of Congress to pass the money in, in terms of aid for working people that would be needed. And I just, I don't see that coming from a Biden administration or the Houses of Congress we have now. You know, the hospitals here and across the country are filling up. So there may well be a a huge crisis of not enough hospital beds for the people who need them. Is it true that people have to pay for the test or not? I think that varies from place to place. In the last couple of months, we finally got a system set up here where there is testing that is free if you don't have insurance. But in this country, it's an entirely private medical system, right? So we've got the worst health care in the so-called developed world. I just got a test the other day, um, which will be billed to my insurance, but I believe the people who didn't didn't have insurance could still go and and get it for free. But in a lot of parts of the country, I do not think that's true. And if people have to stay home at work, stay home from work, there's no support for them to do that, and surely that would encourage or mean that people have to go to work because otherwise there's no food on the table. That is right. And there's also, there were just headlines today making a big deal of how in Minneapolis, where where George Floyd was murdered, that there's a lot of violence now because the cops are all quitting the force. Well, yeah, I'm sure there is. There's a lot of hungry people who don't have jobs and who have no means of support. What do people do in that case? Well, they go a little crazy and they do illegal things if there's no legal ones available. Let's focus for a few minutes on the the future, looking at things like job security, decent wages, access to childcare, things like that. What are your thoughts under Biden? I think anything that we get under Biden will be fought for tooth and nail. I don't see him having any interest in supporting the child care needs that are excessive in this country because there's, uh, there is not very much public child care available and the cost of child care is sky high. He's said some verbiage about promoting a public option, quote-unquote, 
in Obamacare, but he's totally against Medicare for all, uh, which, you know, is a system like Canada's, uh, where the government pays the bills and, you know, taxes pay for it. You know, he's very definitely against that. He's a big promoter of fracking. He got a lot of money from the fossil fuel industry, so that's another reason I don't think he's doing much on climate change. He was one of the people who made the Clinton anti-crime bill so extensive, which really increased the number of people of color who went to prison. He's from the extreme right wing of the Democratic Party. What are your thoughts on the movement in some places to defund the police? I think it's a good call if it's specific. It's been raised all across the country, and sometimes it ends up with, oh, a 5% shifting of money, counting tricks to make it look like there's some, some cutback. We think a more concrete approach of, like, calling for elected civilian review boards with power over the police and with independent prosecutors would actually be a better reform than just saying defund. But defund is good if it happens. If it's actually 50% or more, that might have some effect, but... It's kind of a very narrow demand because one of the things is a lot of right-wing groups fund the police guilds, and so they fund police actions if government doesn't fund it. So, you know, how much have you gained even? How does that work, the guilds? You mean that private people are paying for the police? They give huge amounts of money to the police guilds, Some of that money goes to political donations to politicians, but they can also give money to police functions, you know, or under the table. They can buy things for cops that then they take out on the street. Police funding, it's quite interesting. It's a whole whole separate subject of... uh, It's part of the whole dark money thing where the ultra-wealthy have the ability to give huge amounts of money to uh, right-wing media, police guilds, politicians, without it being tracked, without you being able to tell where that money came from or where it's going. Can you talk a little about the future for socialism in the United States? It's a word that's been heard many times over the last six months or so, not always in a a good way. A lot of it's been negative. Where do you see it heading? I'm glad you mentioned that because that's one thing for people to consider about Biden. He is a real anti-communist, and he really pushed how he beat Bernie Sanders and he's not you know, going to give anything to the left wing of the Democratic Party, much less us who are beyond that. I do expect there to be a red scare to be mobilized under him. You know, the question is, what's going to happen on the ground in the movements? Now, the left wing of the labor movement is growing in this country. There was a movement in a lot of cities to expel the police guilds from the labor councils 
that happened here in Seattle. Also, there were a number of unions and labor councils that called for a general strike if Trump tried to steal the election. That's a really positive development, and I think it is happening in other movements to various degrees. A lot of it's a matter for the future to see how far it develops, but I think as people's living situations get worse, they tend to see that, gee, the people who have been out in the streets supporting us all this time are the left. So I expect if certainly the socialist movement has grown, you know, since the beginning of the pandemic and upsurge of the, of the summer, since the summer of the racial justice movement, I expect that to, to continue. And the role in that movement for the Socialist Freedom Socialist Party and Radical Women? As socialist feminists, we're very active in uh, the feminist movement, which frankly needs to revive itself in this country. It, in the last few years, it's been in decline and is just now emerging from that. In the racial justice movement, we've been uh, very involved Everywhere we are, and in New York City, there's a major campaign for an elected civilian review board. Uh, we're also very active around eco-socialism and climate change involved in that movement. We feel that the labor movement is key to all the other movements, and we've been we organize a lot in the labor movement and the feminist movement and the the international socialist movement, which is growing also, and ties between organizations are growing. And how do people gain access to your newspaper? Socialism.com is our website. Nice, easy name to remember. The Freedom Socialist is available there. We very much appreciate and need the financial support because it's tough to publish newspapers these days, and Australians can buy it right online and choose the Australian dollar option. But also, I must say, if you don't have the money, all the entire newspaper from its beginnings is available online uh, at that same website. And the other thing that we're doing is we're, we're doing a lot of Zoom events, just like everybody in the world is now, <laughs> but um, one that people might be interested in that's coming up is uh, one on dark money in the 2020 election and all the money from the, the right wing that has been funneled toward the Trump campaign and the national, the U.S. national chair, Gary Hodgson, uh, she researches this quite a bit, and she's going to be the speaker, and it's on uh, Saturday the 17th, at uh, which would be Friday in your world, but anyway, Saturday the 21st at 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time in U.S. terms, and if you go to socialism.com and click on the join us and then go to events and scroll down, you will find that, that event which is going to be Friday in your time. It's been lovely speaking to you, and I really appreciate this. Uh, you know, we're spending a lot of time trying to figure these issues out, and it's always good to, to uh, talk them over with someone. 
3CR Community Radio, 855am. delusion about children trapped in tunnels. That's how we got Aussie Q, it seems. And now everything else. I mean, now it's just a six-month pipeline from that to Australians who, who, who live in this alternate uh, American fantasy land where they post about Donald Trump all the time. So its ability to, via Save the Children stuff, to get a whole range of different political persuasions in is what I found fascinating, you know. I talk a lot in the Aussie Q videos about how your auntie, she might not be that far right-wing now, but she might be quite left she might just be a spiritual hippie type but there's this broad appeal to things like Save the Children and Great Awakenings there's almost a hippie-like quality to it particularly when you tone down the whole MAGA element of, of traditional Q and it's getting people in there but Q is not just a conspiracy theory is it? it is this conspiracy theory that is meant to drag you right after a few months so your auntie's going to be talking about Make Australia Great Again in six months if she isn't right now You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Following on from the first of Joan Coxich's writings, Hard Facts for Hard Times, which were broadcast on 3CR Tuesday Hometime recently, Now we have the final years. Just to remind the listeners of why you decided Hard Facts for Hard Times and why that title? Today's program really is a continuation of a a talk I had with you, Jan, a couple of weeks ago and I talked about these newsletters that I called Hard Facts for Hard Times quite deliberately and I wrote and distributed 1980 to 1995, just a year after I was elected to Parliament in 1979, because it gave me the resources to be able to do it. And they were small to begin with, but they grew like topsy. And I, what I was keen to do was discuss important issues of the day, not the sort of sanitised crap you get in the mainstream. The difficult topics, and they really were rather difficult, they were peppered with tiny cartoons to lighten it up really going through all the issues and they were hard facts and I researched my material and made sure I got them right because I knew I'd get hit over the head if I didn't and unfortunately since then nothing's changed in fact I think the situation's got worse the media's got a lot worse so what I'm doing today is I'm picking it up halfway through and I'm starting with newsletter number 14 which took I wrote in February 1987. Now I called that one Murdoch Inc and I focused on his power and his malignant influence on the entire world including the miners strike at his plant in Wapping in London and back then he was still an Australian citizen but he was a new species altogether and even back then politicians were scared of him and when he clicked his fingers they jumped Next newsletter, 15, was in November 1987 and that one was, uh, I called it The Mob Moves In and I detailed gangster capitalists challenging any pretense that capitalism is a benign economic structure for providing goods and services to ordinary people. And it goes without saying 
that hard times are not due to some freak of nature but come about as a direct result of the chaotic nature of the economic system itself. And I gave Bob Hawke a bit of a run and also mentioned the militarisation of the Asia-Pacific, which is our neck of the woods, and how Uncle Sam quickly put an end to the euphoria when the Whitlam government was elected by a series of moves which destabilised it and finally put it out of office. And all of that is very well documented. Next newsletter, number 16, came out in April 1988. Again, I raised the destructive role of Hawke and Kelty in further buggering up the ALP and trade unions and managed to lose the support of traditional support of the traditional people, the working class people. And I spent some space attacking the rush to privatisation. In the US, they said George Washington couldn't tell a lie. Richard Nixon couldn't tell the truth. And Ronald Reagan couldn't tell the difference. The next newsletter, 17, was 1988. And I called that one, or gave it the heading, The New Barbarians, and how reactionary politics is gaining ground in so-called advanced capitalist countries. Mentioned in some detail the Iran-Contragate scandal and how Reagan got elected on the back of it on a total lie. And I quoted from Barbara Honecker. Now, she was a former White House aide who I met in Washington, D.C., back sometime earlier in the 80s and told me that she'd attended a meeting in 1981 and present were Ronald Reagan, George Bush and members of the Economic Advisory Board and as well as that, or as well as them, CIA head Casey, he was asked what the CIA was up to these days and he replied, well, we're looking into our disinformation policy Carter didn't have enough of it, but we're correcting the situation. We'll know we've succeeded when everything the public believes is wrong. It's quite a startling statement, I think, that one is. Newsletter number eight, 18 rather, was May 1989, and that's when the Union Accord came in, which was a catastrophe for ordinary workers. Police powers, the attacks on Libya, the sellout of ALP's uranium policy, and I gave provided a list of tax sheets. And then, in newsletter number 19, October 1989, was when deregulation really hit its straps. And then I raised the issue of Interpol, which most people believe is an official international police force regulated by governments, but it is not. This worldwide body is a shady private outfit operating completely without control. People harmed by its activities have no protection or legal redress. In Australia, at the time I wrote this, its Central Bureau office was inside Canberra's Federal Police Headquarters. Newsletter number 20, May 1990. The battle for Chile and the very fast train. We know what happened to that. It was sort of put forward and then hit the wall very quickly military madness and the expenditure, fears that Nicaragua could plunge into civil war. These are, of course, 
proceeds of a vastly more amount of material, but I'd be here all bloody afternoon if I went through all the stuff that I had in, so I've just had to pick out a few bits. I'm sure you'll appreciate that. Newsletter number 21 was in October 1990. A new world order, said George Bush, Bush the senior. He said that at the United Nations about our world today, and I reminded readers of an earlier claim, similar claim, made by Adolf Hitler, with the final words of the horse vessel song, the national anthem of the Nazi party. We will keep on marching, even if everything collapses around us. Bush repeated the dictum that the United States feels free to move against any country which it believes threatens its interests. Then we saw the sale of Victoria State Bank. It was a ploy by Keating to clear the decks for the privatisation of the Commonwealth Bank and other publicly owned assets and we've seen what that has done and I finished with a poem by Lernig this is what he had to say they're privatising things we own together they're flogging off the people's common ground and though we're still connected by the weather they say that sharing things is now unsound they're lonelifying all the public spaces they're rationalising swags and billabongs they're awfulising nature's lovely places, dismantling the dreaming and the songs. Their macho fear of flabby soft sensations make them pine for all things hard and lean. They talk of foreign market penetration, throbbing private sectors, it's obscene. Basically, unloving types of creatures with the demons lurking underneath their beds. You'll notice that a necktie always features to keep their hearts quite separate from their heads. So if they steal away the people's treasure and bring the jolly swagman to his knees, they can't remove the simple, common pleasure of loathing public bastards such as these. I think that's a delightful poem. And of course, Joan, there were lots of unloving characters over those five or so years, weren't there? Oh God, I think they're still around. I don't think it was just over those five or so years. I think that's when they first manifested themselves. You know, before that, we hadn't taken as much notice, but things got so crook that you could see them coming out of their holes in the ground, you know? Anyway. And there were some pretty nasty things that did happen in that far, those five years. Oh, terrible, terrible. And that's what I, you know, went into great detail about. It was at home here, nasty, nasty things happening, but especially overseas as well. Absolutely. And that, I highlight the next... Um, edition and that was a special one that came out in February 1991 and I, I, I headed that one War is No Solution and that was about Gulf War number one and that of course was about the politics of oil and how Saddam Hussein fell into a trap before invading Kuwait he'd met the US ambassador to Kuwait April Glasby on, on the 25th of July 1990 and he had a long and frank conversation with her when she gave him the nod to go ahead and invade. And the 17-page transcript of this meeting was released by Iraq and has never been challenged by the US State Department. After that, it's interesting that April Glasby's career took a nosedive. Now... There's newsletter number 22, May of the same year, 1991. And after the Turkish shoot about US-instigated butchery in the Gulf, there was a ferocious six-week bombing campaign that killed more than 200,000 civilian and military Iraqis. 
After the official ceasefire in an act of sheer barbarism, U.S. pilots were ordered to pursue a vast and broken and trapped retreating Iraqi army, many of them young conscripts, as well as terrified refugees, and mercilessly slaughter them. Pilots described the thrill of picking them off as being like a turkey shoot. In our brave new world, there is a new vocabulary to match. Genuine peace, peace plans are always described as unrealistic. And then there's more about the country that the US and us, we were there in the Gulf, that we liberated. Kuwait, run by the rotten and corrupt El Sabah clan. And then I wrote more about uranium and about GATT, turning the entire world into a free trade zone, and about East Timor and our shameful role in the Timor GATT Treaty when we rooked them. Newsletter number 23 was November 1991. This was headed, any bastards as long as they're anti-communist, and it was really a, a neo-fascist takeover. We had official gangsters like the Yakuza in Japan, the Triads, the Nugenhan Bank, the CIA and its National Endowment for Democracy entering the mainstream. And there was also, I wrote a long article about the culprit behind the Hilton so-called bombing. Then there was a fire at Coot Island in the west, which contained a lethal cocktail of the most toxic and explosive chemicals in the world, a time bomb and it was ignored by authorities after warnings from environmentalists and many other people. No inspections, and it was a shameful thing. It could have been a catastrophe. Fortunately, it didn't turn into a major one, but it could easily have done. Newsletter number 24, May 1992. We rule you, we fool you. Keating uh, replaced Hawke as PM, and when the U.S., the UN, I should say, has become a US enforcement agency. I talked about the collapse of the Soviet Union with its most powerful remnant, Russia, taken over by the drunken, power-hungry Boris Yeltsin, who loved stock exchanges and powerful cars, whose first act was to ban the Communist Party, and he became just another US lackey. Many articles I wrote in that issue about our chucking away our culture at our school skills with the demise of manufacture. George Bush and his entourage dropped in, demanding further tariff cuts, talked about Cuba and how the collapse of the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc created huge problems for them. Getting to the point, newsletter number 25 in December of that year, 1992, called that one Upshit Creek, which just about summed the situation up, and I said they've even flogged off the paddle. United we bargain, divided we beg. Fairly reasonable slogan, I reckon. Human and ecological mayhem with wars and economies being run into the ground. Our public sector, one of the smallest in the world, has been further savaged. And after 13 years, I retired from Parliament. Hooray. And unfortunately, that same year, we had the election of Jeff Kennett, who was a total nightmare, selling and destroying anything with public in front of it. And I talked about the privatisation of telecom, and we've seen where that's taken us. Newsletter number 26, August 1993, keeping the world on the boil. And I raised my Cuban exhibition, which was fabulous, The Plight of Palestinians. And we'll hear the final part of Hard Facts for Hard Times on the program next week with John Cobbsage. 
You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Blockade iMark is a platform for voices on the front line of resistance to mining and resource extraction. This year, while mining hasn't moved online, the International Mining and Resources Conference has. And although we can't have the same huge physical presence like we did last year, we will continue resisting this injustice and fighting for a better world. From the 22nd to the 29th of November, we're holding an online counter-conference, Beyond Mining, Protecting Land, Water and Life. To sign up for updates and check out the program for Beyond Mining, go to www.blockadeimark.com. Blockade IMARC for Climate Justice, Sunday, November the 22nd to November the 29th. Blockade IMARC is a 3CR supporter. And it's welcome back to Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association. Kate, once again the issue of the role of MINURSO, the UN mission for the referendum in Western Sahara. The Security Council has voted once again to extend its mandate for a further year, but again, it appears to be a paper tiger if you take its name and stated role as the whole purpose of its existence. Is it a paper tiger? Well, it's hard to say not. I mean, I I, I think Secretary-General's personal envoys who've been appointed to try and forward the peace plan have made genuine efforts to have roundtable talks to try and find, I mean, in some cases, they've drawn up detailed uh, settlement plans and and all that and gone back to the drawing board when bits were rejected and done this again. And as soon as Western Sahara agrees to it, Morocco then disagrees. Morocco's just been giving them a big run round, really. And it wants to pay lip service to the UN trying to do something about it, but what it really wants them to do is simply agree to their land grab. It's as simple as that. And so Morocco just finds different ways of subverting the peace process that the United Nations has set up, and as I say, in in many cases for people with good faith, but they they then run into this hurdle and they realise that they can't, seem to get around that Morocco doesn't want it and so they go with the they didn't want to have the other kind of oh when it goes to the Security Council it has there's chapter 6 and chapter 7 that it can be received under chapter 6 I think is where it is and that's an agreed settlement by the two parties chapter 7 is when the UN tries to enforce the decision and uh, I mean, Morocco has made them very frightened of wanting to do that, and they don't want to provoke um, conflict. So, so it, 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 it's got them over a barrel, really. They can't find a way to do what they have agreed to do, which is to get the referendum going, which is the normal. There's nothing unusual about it. The only thing that's different is that it, it's a colony, a former colony, that Morocco now wishes to own. Every other former colony has had a process of decolonisation. 
surely the UN should have a way around that. You would think so, wouldn't you? You really would. But um, it's it's pretty clear. And this particular... Uh, I mean, there have been some secretary-generals that have that have made more progress than others, perhaps. But, but yes, you, do, you really would think that they could just say to Morocco, sorry, you've, to, you've agreed to this, we're going to do it. But somehow they never find the courage or the, whatever it is, conviction to do it. I mean, Morocco's got a lot of, you know, if they're not bribing with, you know, money in some way or another, contracts or to, to businesses or something like that to the different countries that are in the Security Council, they are threatening. And the, their big threat to the uh, European countries is that they will open the floodgates of immigration, send all these immigrants across to Spain. So that's one of the big threats. They also threaten with NATO that they won't participate in anti-terrorist policies, all kinds of things like that. In the case of Sweden, when they were poised ready to recognize the Sahrawi Republic, they threatened all those things, plus that they could not have opened a branch of IKEA in, in Morocco. Oh, my God. <laughs> and IKEA wanted to have their branch there. Yeah. It, it's it's a, uh, a shocking business, really. But this non-action by the UN only increases a sense of frustration, doesn't it? And that's coming out now particularly in the South. It, the action is in the South, but the frustration is throughout the Zahrawi populations both, on both sides of the wall and abroad. I mean, everybody is really fed up with the UN. But some of them, the ones who are living in Spain, remind us that Spain is actually the guilty party because if Spain had in its power the, the, the task, the responsibility to, to hold this referendum and, and they didn't do it. If they had done that in a timely manner before they, Morocco persuaded them to leave, all of this would, have been, would be over. So, and now they won't take responsibility for that fact. So that's one of the things, that's another element in it that Spain is definitely has a, had, had a role but the situation as it is right now it's Minoso that it seems to be taking sides and not just dragging its feet and talking platitudes but, but actually siding with Morocco and saying that this is a trade route that is being blocked it should be uh, calling on the Sahrawis not to block it and to reopen it. But in uh, 2001, when the Moroccans first opened this breach in the military wall, which was not provided for under the military agreement that governed the ceasefire, uh, the Sahrawis uh, complained and the UN Secretary-General at the time said, yes, it, it, it's illegal, they shouldn't do it, they must, I don't know whether he said they must close it, but he, said, he definitely recorded it as a breach of the ceasefire. And yet now the new Secretary-General has said, well, it's quite okay because it's not a military use that, that is being put to, it's being, it's a trade route. Well, the trade 
<laughs> this is the other complaint from the Saharawis that they, uh, an important component of the trade is their resources, uh, their stolen resources, which might be phosphate, which might be fish, which might be tomatoes, that going in huge lorries through to Mauritania and on to the rest of Africa. In addition to the Saharawi produce that would be in these big trucks, there would be also, it's a major, major trade corridor for Morocco's major export, which is marijuana. That's another big issue for completely different reasons. That's also an undesirable trade that the UN should be engaged in in trying to stop. It's one of the means of for the terrorist groups to fund themselves by selling drugs. It's generally not a trade that the UN should be in any way associated with, it seems to me. And it is an unstable area of Africa, isn't it, to the east of Western Sahara? The sort of borders around Mali and Algeria and, and uh, uh, that sort of sp- uh, space, yes, there, there have been these... Um, Oh, I don't know. I can't. <laughs> many, many problems, yes, uh, with with uh, different groups. This issue of the illegally transporting through that border has been taken up recently by a US senator. Did he get much response to his speech? I suspect not. It, it seemed to me that there was almost an empty, empty chamber by the time he finished his speech, I'm afraid. But, it, you know, these... MPs, they believe in something, they still do it, and it goes into their equivalent of Hansard, whatever they've got in uh, record, in whatever they call their record in uh, America, and um, and it's and it's there, and and it's a it was a very good rundown on the whole situation. He had up to date slides about Gagarat, this crossing on the uh, that we've just been talking about. And uh, showing where the um, trouble was and, and, and all the rest and how it related to the military wall. And so, yes, I mean, he, it was a, a, a useful contribution. As for a response, I haven't heard anything about that. Does the UN have any personnel on that border where the trucks are coming through to see what's actually happening? Uh, well, I believe they did have. And then they, <laughs> when, when the ceasefire was declared over, uh, they went away and left them to have their shoot each other. They didn't want to get involved, or they, they didn't want to try and, um, and and stop. So there have been military exchanges, you know, exchanges of fire, not only at that border crossing, but at several other border crossings right up to the north. I suppose the Saharawi army could foresee that if everybody went right down to the south, that would be a great diversion for Morocco to then try and make incursions through a northern uh, side to um, take back some of the what we call the liberated territory, the free zone, it's sometimes called, on the, the other side. The wall doesn't follow the map border of, of Western Sahara, but slices through and leaves chunks on the other side, which the the Moroccans had no use for, and which the Saharawis were able to hold through the whole of the 14-year war that 
was held. And all this, Kate, is happening on near the 10th anniversary of the violent and deadly dismantling of the Gideon Izik protest camp. Exactly, yes, that's right. It's a, uh, a poignant reminder that it's been 10 years since uh, that happened, and it, the older we get, the shorter that seems. But for some of these young people who are now very motivated to take up arms and fight for their country, uh, Gede Mizik has probably seems a long time ago. If they're 20-year-olds, they were only 10 at that time. Uh, and if they were 20, then they'll you know, be 30 now. So like it, it, it'll seem <clears throat> a long time for those young people. All that time, the people who were arrested eventually tried and imprisoned on very long life sentences. 18 of them are still in prison, seeing out their... Uh, 20, 30, or life imprisonment um, sentences. The Moroccans probably hoped to stop the protests by putting all these people in prison, but um, it's far too deeply held for it to be the response. You know, the, due to just a couple of of hothead every Sahrawi who believes in their right to self determination. And all that's happening there at the moment, of course, is happening with COVID-19. Is it under control in Western Sahara? I think they've managed to do a pretty good job. But for those interested, there's going to be a webinar on exactly that topic coming up on Wednesday at 6 p.m. our time. It's going to be really interesting because we'll be hearing again from our Sahari visitor of last year, Tekba uh, Salah Ahmed, who is, works in the health department. So she has been following very closely or, or even instrumental in trying to set up systems which will contain any outbreaks and protect the population because uh, they are very aware that the health of really all of the refugees is so compromised that they would be very vulnerable indeed to an outbreak. There have been one or two cases, but they've all been taken to the um, National Hospital at the uh, area called Rabuni, which is like the Canberra, if you like, of the of the camps. And they seem to have be on top of it. But this is evidence from a little while ago, so we'll. If we want to get up to date, we'll find out from them and from the the country director of Oxfam Algeria. They've got a good project which also is raising funds to assist, which is to help pipe water to the camps so that people will have a, a, a ready supply of fresh water and not have to carry it in canisters from uh, water trucks that turn up in different spots they're going to install piped water, which will make a very big difference to them. And, you know, it's useless to tell people to wash their hands all the time if there's no water. I suppose they could use sanitizer, but uh, the idea was that it would help with implementing a safe COVID uh, regime in the camps. To contribute to that? Uh, yes, and to contribute to that, there is an appeal. Facebook page, I think, which is Western Sahara Down Under. That's the name of our author Facebook page. 
the posters advertising the webinar will be there as well as hopefully the appeal. Okay, Kate, well, the Nobel Peace Prize for 2020 was uh, awarded to the UN World Food Programme and that's at least one organisation with the UN that's doing a fantastic job and has been doing that for many, many years. Exactly. I mean, they've been in exile now for 45 years and I think that Morocco has often wanted to just starve them out in the desert and hope that the whole thing would fizzle out uh, in that way. But they've not managed to do that. The food that is supplied is only barely adequate. It does keep them alive, but it doesn't keep them in good health so that there is stunted growth among the children and stuff like that. They, they really do need to have programs that would improve their diet and have more fresh fruit and vegetables and meat probably because they just get lentils and uh, couscous and rice and there's five commodities, rice, oil, barley, where they also make couscous from barley, lentils. From the, the, the European food program gives them one tin of sardines a month or something like that. Those of us who try to protect the fishing resources think is very unfair considering that half the world is taking their fish resources and selling them at great profit. Refugees can only get a tiny taste of sardines once in a way. But the other thing that's called, you know, that, that, that is the problem for the World Food Programme is well-known problem of compassion fatigue. People get simply tired of being asked all the time for money. I know the feeling. I'm sure everybody else does. Keeping the donations coming to keep the food program operational is, is really hard, and I think they need to be congratulated for that. What, what is needed is, is an end to the exile, of course, not uh, more food, but uh, in the interim they could do with some food. We started off talking about the theft of resources from Western Sahara. People in New Zealand are actually doing something about it today. That's right. There's been a, um, a terrific mobilisation of action against the... When some of the people have understood what was happening, that the New Zealand agriculture is being largely supported by phosphate from Western Sahara, that which they, they've dubbed blood phosphate. They've become outraged about this, and there's two companies that are the importers uh, who are actually the last two in the Western world who are still importing the phosphate from Western Sahara, and they're called Ravensdown and Balance Agri-Nutrients. Today, they've mobilized actions that are happening right from the south to the north, from Dunedin to Christchurch, Tauranga in the north, and Mastata. They've done a lot of uh, very um, headline-grabbing actions, and uh, so, yes, I wish them every success. It's interesting how they've also found allies among the Maori groups who feel also exploited and who who, in some cases, whose phosphate on the Pacific Islands have been plundered by British and Australian 
and New Zealand companies. That's another interesting dimension to the New Zealand campaign for Western Sahara. Have we finally finished imports in Australia from Western Sahara? So far as we know, they, the last remaining company is on, is on a amber light, on a, on a traffic light system under observation, but they won't say that they've given up. They let their last contract run out and they haven't actually imported for three years. In, in all practical terms, Australia is no longer a, a, an importer. A new library in the Sahrawi refugee camps, a new one, that means there's already one there. Yes, I've only just discovered this group. It's a German-based group, I think, which has been providing books for Sahrawis for some considerable time. And it's great because they are um, not only providing books, which is very hard for the children to come by, but uh, it's, it's largely aimed at children, I, should, I, I think I should say. But they ha- uh, also organize activities, after-school activities for the children. And right at the moment, because of COVID restrictions, and they can only, you know, to, to try and have... Um, fewer people together at, at one time. The children are only getting two hours of schooling a day. And so after-school activities are really important. And so it's wonderful that they've opened this new library. Uh, and I had communication with, the, with Daniel Smith in the UK. Daniel Smith is the founder of the arts organization called Sandblast, uh, which has coupled up with a music organization called Stave House, Music Education, and they are teaching the children music, but they are also teaching them English. And she says that they would, are now thinking that they would like to collect books in English to give to this library, children's books, so that um, the children can you know, continue there. Quite a, so many of them are learning English now that um, it would make it good for them to have some, some books. So, so those two projects are actually going to you know, work with each other in this respect, so that's good. And there's a new book that we can read. Oh, yes, yes, good. Uh, Joanna Allen, who's a, a great supporter of Western Sahara, She's been the, the chair of uh, Western Sahara Resource Watch as well. Her, her PhD w- research was on women and resistance, and she did a sort of comparative study. The book is called Silenced Resistance, Women, Dictatorships, and Gender Washing in Western Sahara and Equatorial Guinea. Joanna had a very exciting time when she went, she wanted to, attend a women's conference that was being held in El Ayun and she and another person went. I think they got through to El Ayun, but then they, um, they were abducted. You know, the authorities found out that they were there and they took them and returned them to Agadir in Morocco and they had to go home. So she found another way to get there and she did find a Sahrawi family that she could live with Instead of her going around to visit different people, they brought everybody to her 
to um, be interviewed. The research that she did is very rare because, as you can see, it's not easy to have access in Western Sahara to uh, the Sahrawi population. I think it's probably quite quite valuable research in that respect. But she's obviously got a lot of courage as well to persist with this uh, this work. Talking of resistance, she met a lot of resistance to what she was trying to do. Do you have the publisher? Oh, the publisher is um, the University of Wisconsin Press, the, the University of Wisconsin Press, and they've got a website, uwpress.wisc.edu. If you want to go to that particular book, it's slash books slash 5757.htm. I've been speaking with Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association. If you'd like to assist Oxfam in bringing piped water to the camps in Western Algeria, the place to find it is givenow.com.au slash Western Sahara Appeal. And for the webinar on Wednesday at 6pm about COVID in the camps and the health system, their Facebook page is Western Sahara Down Under. The Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. We have seen record numbers of protests in Latin America recently, explicitly calling for an appropriate response to the pandemic, alongside the protection of healthcare workers and social and economic welfare for the population. Ecuador, Brazil, Bolivia and Chile have all grown increasingly feeble in their justifications for both a lack of action against coronavirus as well as their increasingly authoritarian behaviour. Suffice to say, the Latin American right is being undone by its contempt for public healthcare. Its contempt for an essential human right. And with their traditional backer, the USA, embroiled in its own pandemic nightmare, the kleptocrats, religious zealots and maniacs leading Latin America's right wing are now on their own, it seems. And the region's people, from all available evidence, are perfectly aware of this fact. And their actions against this public health and political emergency are becoming all the more radical. After all, it is a matter of life and death, as it has always been in Latin America. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. In late October 2020, an international treaty banning nuclear weapons was ratified by the 50th country. Honduras, allowing the historic 
though described as essentially symbolic text, to enter into force after 90 days on the 22nd of January 2021. Reporting some of the comments on the news. Today is a victory for humanity and a promise of a safer future. It represents a meaningful commitment towards the total elimination of nuclear weapons. Setsuko Thurlaw, a survivor of the 1945 bombing of Hiroshima, who has been an ardent campaigner for the treaty, said, When I learned that we reached our 50th ratification, I was not able to stand. I remained in my chair and put my head in my hands, and I cried tears of joy, she said in a statement. I have committed my life to the abolition of nuclear weapons. I have nothing but gratitude for those who have worked for the success of this treaty. The organisation which spearheaded the campaign to bring the treaty into existence is ICANN, International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons. It was launched globally at two events, the first on the 23rd of April 2007 in Melbourne, where funds had been raised to establish the campaign, and the second on the 30th of April in Vienna at a meeting of state parties to the treaty on the non-proliferation of nuclear weapons. ICANN is currently made up of 532 partner organisations in 103 countries and in October 2017 the Nobel Peace Prize for that year was awarded to ICANN. Associate Professor Tilman Ruff has been involved with ICANN and other anti-nuclear issues for a very long time and I spoke with him recently. Tillman, I'm sure there was a great deal of work behind the scenes and and elsewhere before the launch of ICANN, but debates about an action against nuclear weapons goes back to 1945 and the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Is that correct? Well, actually, the scientists who knew what was in the works, and this was obviously a very secret process when they were developing the atomic bomb, the Manhattan Project, it was then, you know, the largest industrial and scientific project that had ever been undertaken. And even many of the scientists uh, who were involved with it were deeply concerned about where this was headed. So opposition started really very early. I think the first really prominent international opposition came when within a month of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings, the International Red Cross movement, particularly through the International Committee of the Red Cross, which is the bit of the Red Cross that's in charge of the response to disasters and war in particular, they saw, they were the first international relief organisation on the ground in Hiroshima and they saw just how unmanageable and unprecedented and impossible was this situation. They were confronted with you know, 100,000 severely injured people and the capacity to treat tiny numbers with destroyed hospitals and almost all the doctors and nurses killed or injured. So within a month of the bombings there in Japan, the Red Cross actually called for the elimination of atomic weapons. So opposition got back a long way. And when the United Nations was set up in 1946 out of the aftermath of, by then, most of all wars, you know, which killed 50 million people and the very first sentence in the preamble of the United Nations Charter is, you know, to protect succeeding generations from the scourge of war. That was the primary purpose of this new collective effort to try and cooperatively build a better humanity and a better world. 
the very first resolution that the General Assembly passed on the 24th of January 1946, so just a couple of months after the bombings, was calling for the elimination of atomic weapons. I think public opposition really got going when the nuclear armed states started really testing large numbers of nuclear weapons in the atmosphere, and they produced you know, extremely high levels of fallout, not just for the workers and the downwind communities, but also all around the world. And then particularly a tooth thing that was called the Tooth Fairy Project where parents were invited to, to send the milk teeth of their kids to check for strontium levels which concentrates in bones and teeth and, and scientists were able to show that there were dramatically rising levels of strontium-90 in kids' teeth from all over the world during the 1950s. So public opposition started really very early. It's been a, you know, a constant feature of this that uh, the will of humanity in so many ways, in all of the humanitarian and relief organisations in the United Nations, in the Red Cross, in many parts of civil society, trade unions, churches, human rights groups, all sorts of groups have, have been calling for this, you know, for now three quarters of a century. Who were the early groups here in Australia? I wasn't around then, obviously, when it really started, but um, I understand that there were sort of groups that certainly started in the, in the, in the late 1940s. And then in the 50s really took off in a big way. Some organisations that are still around that were enormously prominent uh, then, for example, the CICD, the Congress for International Cooperation and Disarmament, became a huge organisation with many tens of thousands of people involved with it at that time. The first uh, medical organisation, actually, the first branch of the Medical Association for Prevention of War was was started here in in the 50s. There were lots of organisations that, that came on board in the 50s working for this, but, but I'm probably not the best <laughs> equipped to, to do justice to all of that long history in detail. Of course, it's been a, a deep part of the labour movement, of, of union history, of church history in Australia, of really the social justice and human rights movements. This has been a part of you know the social fabric of Australia really for a very long time. We see that still now very consistently, even when it's not really too much on the media landscape, even when the government opposes things like the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Consistently, between 70 and 80% of the population, when you ask them, say they want Australia to join the Treaty that bans nuclear weapons. The testing off the coast of Australia and also the testing in central Australia, did that activate people a lot more to join and to protest? Uh, It must have over time, but I think because those tests were conducted in such secret and really so little was publicly known about the risks. The risks were dramatically hidden, downplayed. It was you know, repeatedly said that these tests, Prime Minister Menzies said, you know, there would be no harm done to any people or animals in the Commonwealth. I mean, this bald statement back in the early 50s, you have to remember that he decided to accept the British request to test nuclear weapons in Australia completely off his own bat. He didn't even consult Cabinet, let alone the Parliament or the wider public in in some ways. And the the Atomics Weapons Test Safety Committee that had the job of managing the public safety as best it could, at least, you know, making sure that the wind wasn't blowing directly towards population centres when they let off tests and and at least to have some basic monitoring program around the country to, to actually be able to know where the fallout went. You know, that was headed by Sir Ernest Tittingham, who was, you know, a nuclear warrior till his dying day, had actually 
witnessed. In fact, it was he that pushed the trigger on the Trinity test, uh, the first time a nuclear weapon had ever been exploded, the plutonium bomb that was tested in July 46, just before the, that same kind of bomb was used in Nagasaki. You know, he, he did that. His interest was in the weapons development. They had, he had no interest in, in public health and safety, in which he was not expert at all either. And the Royal Commission that was later organised in the 1980s, a remarkable body of work led by Diamond Jim McClelland, a really, truly landmark in Australian sort of public accountability and investigation, um, was absolutely scathing about Titterton's role and, and the, the negligence, the failure to protect the public of the Atomic Weapons Test Safety Committee. But the whole of government was really, it was very much a British enterprise. Australians did the dirtiest and the most dangerous work. 16,000 young Australians uh, worked on that program, had you know, deeply traumatic experiences. Many of them later were shown very clearly to have higher rates of cancer as a result of that work. Indigenous people in the surrounding area were barely counted among the flora and fauna then and were totally put in harm and left in harm's way. And the major program actually that is the cause of most of the residual contamination that's still present in South Australia that will be for you know, hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years still, is mainly from not from the actual 12 nuclear bombs that were let off at Monte Bello, at Maralinga and Emu Field in South Australia, but from what were called minor trials. So these were not nuclear explosions themselves, but where different parts of the bomb, different components of a bomb were assembled to test them, and a lot of them were what were called one-point safety tests. So these were tests where a bomb was subjected to a fire or dropped from an aircraft or some other insult to it to make sure it didn't explode when it wasn't supposed to. And these dispersed large amounts of plutonium and uranium and, and other chemicals that were in the bomb very widely, and there were 600 of these that went on until 1963, and no Australian was ever present at any of these. And in fact, the extent of the contamination was really not understood until the Royal Commission and then the Australian Radiation Laboratory actually did some studies that showed how severe and extensive the remaining contamination was. You know, the Olympic Games were held in Melbourne in 1956, right in the middle of this testing program, when Melbourne was actually mildly radioactive at the time from some fallout that had come our way just shortly beforehand. And this was basically just completely under the carpet. You know, this was managed very carefully from the government level, basically in the interests of the British Weapons Development Program and not in the interests of the Australian public. So I think while there were some scientists that really were very concerned about this, a guy called Marston in South Australia, probably the most prominent among them, and obviously this caused great distress um, and dismay amongst um, Aboriginal people in Northern South Australia, Northern Territory, adjacent parts of West Australia. I think for the wider public, a lot of the awful reality of this program and, and how it impacted on all of us, and basically all of Australia, with the exception of the little southwest corner at the bottom of South Australia, the whole rest of the continent got dusted with fallout. And all of us, every single one of us, carries in our bones, in our teeth, in every cell in our body, carries radioactive material from those tests. I think at the time, there was a lot of cover-up and secrecy and, and deliberate, you know, reassuring, falsely reassuring the public that these tests didn't have adverse health implications, which, of course, now we know that they did. Was it then more the Pacific tests that brought people out? I think the movement against testing really grew, and that was the sort of the wedge, the 
the sharp point at which most people, the largest number of people got involved um, against nuclear weapons because it was the most visible expression of this developing um, nuclear capacity and, and the arms race that was going on and it was causing such obvious by then health risks, you know, immediately to everybody. But the French testing program in the Pacific really galvanised um, people in a way that previous testing programs hadn't. And I think the fact that the French continued it for so long, and in fact didn't stop until 1996, underground testing, one of the last countries with China to join the non-proliferation treaty. Only in 1992 did they join. The treaty was entered into force in, in 1970. So the French really held out, and basically they did this last flurry of tests in uh, 1995, basically to try and be in a position to be able to, to develop all of the laboratory-based and computer-based processes to be able to develop new nuclear weapons without having to blow them up to see if they worked. So they wanted to be in a position to, to do that. So, so unfortunately for the nuclear armed states, the bigger ones, they really stopped testing basically when they didn't need to blow bombs up to make sure that they worked anymore. So unfortunately, even though Testing was initially hoped that if you stopped testing, it would actually really curtail nuclear weapons development and proliferation. Unfortunately, that's not no longer the case. Of course, it's still, you know, some new sophisticated types of weapons still would probably require some testing. But basically, now that nuclear weapons can be produced and developed um, without needing to buy them up. Of course, it's it's important that that immediate hazard of fallout generated by, by tests is no longer with us, but of course the, the legacy of contamination will be with us basically till the end of time. By the time the French program was continuing in the 90s, you know, every politician within Australia, whatever their political stripes, even the most extreme conservatives and people that had never said peep about any nuclear issue before, you know, were falling over themselves to be seen to be critical of the French program by that time. How important do you believe the health professionals worldwide have been in keeping this campaign going all those years? I think scientists and, and doctors and health professionals in general have played a, a really important role. Of course, lots of people have. And I think you know the most important message is that this is an issue for everybody and, and people have made and can make contributions from absolutely any discipline, expertise, background, um, whatever it is. But I think the, the scientific and medical evidence about what the weapons actually do and what radiation means for people, what the danger is, the fact that if nuclear weapons are used, there's no effective response possible in any humanitarian sense to help and treat the survivors and victims. So we haven't got any means of cure. You know, prevention is the only option. The only reasonable approach is a, is a really compelling um, sort of health argument. I think that evidence has been really important and we've seen that many of the crucial breakthroughs that have been made, the hard-won gains, the stopping of atmospheric nuclear weapons tests, the end of the arms race, the winding back of nuclear arsenals from their peak of 70,000 in 1986 to now 13,500 roughly, you know, that's over an 80% reduction. A lot of that, you know, the fact that Reagan and Gorbachev, the leaders of the two largest nuclear arms states, were convinced almost to agree to eliminate their arsenals entirely in 85 and 86. Much of that progress uh, really has been underpinned by leaders 
either being subject to huge amounts of public pressure, for example, was due into testing, informed by the scientific and medical evidence that this was contaminating young children all over the world, the evidence about nuclear winter, about the fact that even a smallish nuclear war, not involving all the, the big arsenals even, could cause a climate catastrophe, basically a nuclear ice age and, and famine that would, most people would die of a nuclear war, not from being burnt, but by, or, or irradiated, but by being starved to death all over the world. That evidence was really compelling. And when it, when leaders were able to, to understand that, I think particularly Reagan and Gorbachev, but also David Longy in New Zealand, you know, such a, a wonderful leader in terms of the nuclear free position of New Zealand. You know, he said, you've made medical reality political reality. That's what he told the ICPNW International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War Physicians Group in New Zealand. So the scientific and medical evidence is, has been, and being able to put that authoritatively and, you know, have people understand the implications of that, that you simply can't use these weapons in any logical, reasonable way, that they can't, the whole concept of winners and losers means nothing in relation to nuclear war, that, it, that they, you know, erase the possibility of an effective response. Those dangers, really the comprehension of them, I think scientists and health professionals have made a huge contribution and, I, you know, that's extended right up to the to the recent work with the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, which is firmly based in that evidence and motivated by that evidence. And where I can, the campaign that, that played such an important role with governments in developing that treaty came out of a IPPNW, came out of the physician's organisation. So that evidence, I think, has been really crucial. And, and it's pretty logical, you know, if you, if you, the only way that you can really wrap these weapons up in any way that, you know, makes it possible to tolerate their continuation is basically in myth and magic, you know, theory that of deterrence and that's abstract and that's completely removed from the reality of what the weapons actually do. And I think the particularly powerful combination uh, that played a really important role in ICANN and the treaty um, is combining that scientific and medical evidence which can be a bit, you know, difficult to both to grasp and to, to comprehend because it's, it's, you know, it's awful to think about. But the lived experience of the survivors of the nuclear bombings in Japan, the, the people who've worked with nuclear weapons, the communities that have been adversely impacted by nuclear weapons testing, the people for whom nuclear weapons are not, some, you know, some great power chess game, but a lived daily reality of radiation and suffering and loss and ill health and displacement and fear that goes across generations and doesn't stop, you know, that reality, bringing that home to people with the voices, the lived experience of the, of the survivors, I think, together with, with the, the scientific and medical evidence has really been an incredibly powerful tool, perhaps the most powerful tool that, that ICANN was able to harness. And I think that's been, that's been true really throughout the, the campaign very broad work that civil society has done worldwide to, to try and put nuclear weapons in the dustbin of history where they belong. You're listening here on 3CR to an interview with Associate Professor Tillman Ruff. I'd imagine there were a great number of people who worked tirelessly for a number of years to bring ICANN into existence. Yeah, although the genesis was 
was actually not that long in, you know, with the right idea at the right time. So sort of once that penny had sort of dropped for a number of us that, you know, this was really something whose time has come that had legs on it. Uh, by the time we sort of got that, because it was the right idea at the right time, people sort of bought into it and, and got excited about it and owned it fairly quickly. So while the, the overall work and having organisations that understood the issues that had been working on this issue for years were deeply concerned about the lack of progress on disarmament, that were ready to be able to come together in this campaign coalition. That work, of course, had been going on you know, since 1945, but but actually pulling together the campaign, that was, um, you know, that was sort of three or four, five-year work, not too long, because I think it was the right idea at the right time. And how did it become international? It started in Australia. What was the, the movement worldwide? Yeah. Well, it was always envisaged as an international campaign. It was never an Australian campaign that was going to go international as an aspiration. It was always conceived and constructed and built as, a, as an international campaign that happened to start in Australia, but the, that was international right from the very beginning. Um, so the origin specifically was in 2005 when the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which is this sort of bargain that involves almost every government in the world that says the five nuclear-armed states that had nuclear weapons in 1968 when it was negotiated, so Russia, France, US, China, um, UK, would get rid of them in exchange for the rest of the world not acquiring nuclear weapons, and you'll get a sweetener of some assistance with so-called peaceful uses of nuclear technology. That was the sort of bargain of the non-proliferation treaty. And that conference, that treaty has review conferences every five years where all of the nations get together and review how, this, how the treaty is going and try and progress its implementation. And there was a meeting in 2005, which following on from the previous meeting in 2000, where there had been really an unprecedented plan put forward to sort of 13 points of, you know, very significant disarmament action if they had actually been acted upon. So there were a lot of expectations in 2005, and instead this meeting collapsed in complete failure. You know, a month of hundreds of diplomats meeting at God knows what cost, you know, it could agree absolutely nothing. So that should have been a real wake-up call. And then, you know, a lot of us thought, well, you know, that should galvanise something. So the World Summit was the next sort of big international thing. That was in September 2005, and that was by then the biggest international meeting of heads of state that had ever been held. And what did we see? Again, not a single line agreed on any disarmament measure. So that was really kind of, I think, the penny dropped for lots of people that, hey, business as usual was absolutely stuck, not going anywhere. You know, we need a different approach. Despair and real frustration. And at the same time, we had this extraordinary success in 1997 that with the initial leadership of Canada, joined by Austria and Norway and a couple of other sort of international stars, working together with the International Campaign to Ban Landlines, a very effective civil society campaign coalition that came together, despite the opposition of the US, Russia and China, the biggest users and producers and obviously the largest and most powerful states, despite their opposition, and that's really critical, in less than a decade was able to get a ban on landmines. And now even in the United States, which opposed the treaty, hasn't signed it, 
there are no producers of landmines or cost of munitions in the United States anymore. So these treaties matter and they make, make a difference even in states that, that don't join them. So that was a real inspiration. So, so putting the two together, Ron McCoy, distinguished Malaysian obstetrician, and the way he put it was, you know, I've delivered about 20,000 babies in my working life and, you know, part of my ongoing professional responsibilities for postnatal care for those babies is to make the world a safer place by trying to get rid of nuclear weapons. He's a wonderful man. And he said, he actually wrote in an email that he circulated then to, to many people, he, he basically challenged us. He said, we need an international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. He actually named it. So there was some, a group of us in Melbourne, largely through the Medical Association for Prevention of War and some long-standing fellow travellers, Timothy Hawkins, Dave Sweeney, Sue Wareham, Bill Williams, Fred Mendelssohn, me. You know, we sort of talked about this and we were really struck by the power of Ron's idea and thought, well, you know, we can do that. We can help with that. So we put together a, a plan. We Because we wanted it to be international, we immediately made work to make it a project of an international organisation. So International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War took it on as kind of our project to kick this thing off the ground. We recruited um, Felicity Hill, who is our really experienced international campaigner, as our first campaign worker. She was still working in Geneva at the time. And then Bill Williams and Gisela Gunnery's wife went to Europe and sort of worked up this idea around lots of countries, got together with people interested in peace and disarmament. You know, we've got this idea about a campaign. This is what we're thinking. What do you think? Are you interested? And the uniform message was, yeah, this sounds like what we need. And I did the same thing in Japan. And basically, fairly quickly, we were able to establish that, you know, this looked like it had legs on it. And we decided on a couple of sort of key principles as to how we wanted this thing to work that have largely stood the test of time and I think have stood us in very good stead. So the first of them was this needed to be an international thing. It needed to involve young people. It needed to be focused on the medical and scientific evidence of what the weapons actually do. And its starting point was not the sort of security and political arguments about, about them. It was the reality of what they do. It needed to be very focused. A treaty to ban and provide for the elimination of the weapons. We're not going to engage with you know, lots of other issues. That's going to be our focus. And it will work by not setting up a new organisation, uh, but a very nimble and minimalist kind of campaign coalition to try and deal as many organisations to work together in a way that was very simple and not onerous. So it didn't cost me money to join. You didn't have to come to meetings. All you had to do was to say you were in, supported the goal, were willing to, you know, didn't work in any way to advocate or use violence and agreed to, you know, identify with the campaign. So make it really simple for people to join. And we really wanted to try and use sort of balance, sort of horror, humour, hope and humanity, basically, the four H's. So you have to kind of understand the horror of nuclear weapons to realise that this is urgent and serious. But you need, you need hope. We can do this. We've got the tools. We know how to do this. You need humour to sort of leaven the work, which can otherwise be a bit, you know, daunting. And it's always about, about humanity. It's not about the politics of them. So I think those approaches have really stood us in good stead. It was, um, we started that work in 2005. It was launched first at the Parliament House in Melbourne in April 2007 with Christy Wiramanchi, the 
distinguished Sri Lankan judge who was had been a judge of the International Court of Justice, Malcolm Fraser, and then we had an international launch um, in Vienna at a non-proliferation treaty meeting a couple of weeks later, and that's where it sort of took off, and then fairly quickly it grew. But that was it. That was the way it started. And then the wonderful conference, the UN conference in 2017. Yeah, so, so a number of other steps, of course, but a couple of years later, we got some serious money from the Norwegian government. And I should have mentioned uh, early on that, you know, of course, in any campaign, you know, money is critical. Obviously, people's commitment and and passion and um, and vision is, is the most critical thing. But you really need money to do stuff, to print things, to to travel, to communicate, to employ people, to to run an organisation effectively and engage with governments. That needs money. And um, we were very fortunate that the sort of extended Cantor family, Eve Cantor, who, who some of her siblings, her mum and, and um, Anne Cantor and, and Mark Wooden through the Poor Foundation, saw, I think, the merit of this idea and, and trusted us enough to, to invest in it and have been absolutely crucial supporters all the way through. So that really helped um, kick this thing off much more quickly than we otherwise would have been able to. But then in, um, in 2010, that was supplemented with some, some serious money from the Norwegian government. And, and at that point, the Norwegian government were the biggest funders of, from the government point of view of, of support for civil society efforts. They'd been crucial in the landmines and particularly the cluster munitions ban and had seen how well governments and civil society working well together could add value to each other. They felt that, you know, to, to they had the idea then that, you know, the best thing that the states without the weapons obviously can't get rid of weapons they don't own, but so what could they do? Well, the lessons of landmines and clusters was get a treaty, change the game, change the rules, uh, build international law. That's, you know, essentially one of the most powerful tools that that can be done by those who don't have the weapons. And that approach had not actually been tried for nuclear weapons. But they said we need one go-to civil society partner to work with. We can't deal with hundreds of different organisations with somewhat you know, different agendas and priorities. We need one go-to partner. And some key people in the Norwegian government thought saw this ICANN campaign and felt this potentially could be such a vehicle. So, so they invested in it and we were able to then set up an office in Geneva and employ staff originally engaged on outreach in Europe and the Middle East and Africa. And then that sort of became the global campaign headquarters. And a couple of things came together around 2010, as well as the development of ICANN, to form what was called the, what's become known as the Humanitarian Initiative on Nuclear Weapons, this real movement of governments and people around the world to, to get away from the spin about nuclear weapons and focus on the humanitarian facts of these unacceptable weapons. And, and, and not let the argument just be run by nuclear-armed states. This humanitarian initiative came out of a few different elements, but crucial among them was the idea of actually getting rid of nuclear weapons, getting some new oxygen during Obama's run for presidency and then in the early part of his presidency. Short on delivery, unfortunately, but but it really helped to, to change the politics internationally. And then the Red Cross and Red Crescent movement really picked this up in a big way in 2010. And that then led to the first ever international conference that actually 
discussed these impacts. Can you imagine that it was actually for, for the first time in 2013 the governments actually got together to focus on what these weapons actually did. That had never been the subject of a dedicated international meeting. And that went so well, was seen as so important, was attended by almost 130 governments and that there were two other meetings to follow up, each with increasing number of governments at them in Mexico and then Austria in 2014. But these were evidence-based meetings. These were not negotiated meetings. These were to review, well, what do we know about what nuclear weapons do? What do we know about the risks of their use? And what's their legal position? And at the end of those three conferences, I think the ground was sort of set to build the evidence base and the international consensus that these weapons are unacceptable and we need to do something. Then the Austrian government at the end of the Vienna conference made this very bold announcement that we will want to work to fill this legal gap that had been identified that sees nuclear weapons as the last and worst weapon of mass destruction, but they haven't yet been banned by international treaty. We've done that for biological and chemical weapons. How come we haven't done it for nuclear weapons? We'll work to fill that gap. Anybody, government, civil society, who want to help us, we're open for business. It was a very wonderful statement. And pretty quickly, they got 127 governments on board. So that then, through a number of UN processes, sort of reviews that were open to all governments, reviewing what the next best thing the world could do to deal with this, coming to the clear consensus that the Prohibition Treaty was the next best thing that was actually achievable, given the elephant in the room reality that the nuclear-armed states are actually not seriously interested in pursuing disarmament. They're just not. Whatever they say, they're actually not doing anything. They're hanging on to their weapons bitterly, justifying and investing in them massively, keeping them threatening to use them. So no room, you know, no grounds for serious hope right now there. So the next best thing that we can do is change the rules. So that was really the process that led to the negotiations in 2017 for this new treaty. Three and a bit years later, where are you? We're in some ways, as a world, we're in we're not a good place. Uh, we have sort of multiple crises accelerating where the collective response that we need to deal with an unstable climate that's rapidly heating and where the impacts are just so obvious, you know, for all of us now, you just can't ignore the reality that the world's burning, the weather's getting more violent, uh, food and water insecurity have become real issues that, you know, people are getting displaced. This is, this climate change is not some future thing, it's here. And the other major threat to the climate is actually nuclear weapons. We need to protect our climate both from uncontrolled heating, but also the nuclear ice age that could occur just within a matter of weeks if nuclear weapons are used. It's actually a climate issue. But So on the nuclear weapons front, overall, there's a lot of things that are going badly. Disarmament treaties are being shredded. Nothing is being negotiated to replace them. All of the nuclear armed states are investing extraordinary sums of money. In the US, it's projected that up to $2 trillion will be invested over the next 30 years to develop, refurbish the whole nuclear weapons complex and produce new nuclear weapons of every type. No disarmament is happening and there's new risks of cyber warfare that are that are pretty scary to which command and control systems are vulnerable. So apart from this treaty, there's not a lot else that's going well at the moment. 
hopefully that might change if, if the presidential election in the US um, goes the right way. But otherwise, things are actually in a very dangerous place. And if the US does not renew the New START Treaty, which expired on the February the 5th, then next year there will be no treaty constraints. We'll be back to sort of the worst of the Cold War. Apart from that, that all of that makes this treaty, which is the one really important bright spot, all the more urgent and important. So it's been steadily accruing countries signing it, so that's now 84. It's been accumulating ratification, so that means states have taken the next step to say, yep, we're ready to be legally bound by the provisions of this treaty. And the milestone of 50 states ratifying the treaty was reached on the 24th of October with Honduras' ratification. So that now means that the clock starts ticking. 90 days later, 22nd of January, uh, this treaty will become binding international law, or so-called enter into force. And it will be binding law on those states that have joined the treaty. That's a really significant step. And of course, we're not going to stop at 50. But that's really the next goal is to, you know, use that treaty for countries that join the treaty to really get to work implementing it, making it part of their active diplomacy, putting in all of their own legislation just to have criminal sanctions for anybody involved in nuclear weapons who's subject to their jurisdiction, pushing for divestment of private and public financial institutions from investments uh, in companies that make nuclear weapons starting to work out how they're going to assist the victims of nuclear use and testing that was one of the obligations of the treaty. So lots of work to be done to actually put the meat on those bones. That's a really important development. And it's really interesting that the thing that is the most powerful signal for me that this treaty really matters is the, the strength of opposition of the nuclear armed states to it, which continues unabated. And in fact, just the week before the treaty reached the 50 milestone, it was uh, revealed that the US had, had communicated with all of the states that have signed the treaty, really admonishing them that they had made a, a serious strategic error and urging them to withdraw their signature or ratification from this international treaty, which is really completely unprecedented. So they're clearly worried that it um, puts them on notice that nuclear weapons will soon join chemical and biological weapons as stigmatised illegal unacceptable beyond the pale and you know their justification for them will get much harder to to explain and the failure to disarm will stand out even more obviously that they're really not not part of it so that gives me really encouragement that this treaty really matters but th but that's a significant step uh, that we've now reached that that number to make this actually international law thank you so much for all that thank you I've been speaking with Associate Professor Tillman Ruff. So this is in the middle of the pandemic where this billionaire is suing the Pentagon for a military contract for what most people think is the place that you order books from. It's a very interesting case study in pulling out the different threads of militarism and how it can really be embedded in so many aspects of our lives that we don't even realize that when we order something from Amazon that we're putting workers' lives at risk and that we're supporting what is becoming 
becoming an increasingly important actor in the military industrial complex. Exposing that to people, I think, is very important. People will care if they understand that this is how things are all interconnected and linked. It's surfacing that information, it's making that accessible and making it relevant for people's lives. And I think that is another opportunity that COVID-19 really presents to us is that we are all connected and these structures are all connected. We can see that much more clearly now than we could before. We need to keep radical voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377.